2: Tom, are you ready to get artsy fartsy in the kitchen?
3: Oh, yeah. Please pass the Jew.
2: Is pack your knives. I'm Kevin Arnovitz,
3: and I'm Tom Haberstroh.
2: Tom, a night at the museum for the top chef contestants.
3: I guess maybe I was coming down from the high of last week. Uh, wasn't the strongest episode of the season, but there's some gamesmanship here that I can't wait to talk about.
2: Yeah, I kind of felt the same way. It was all right. It was a three and a half or four stars out of five. Yep
3: it was it was a middle it was a middle not not Quite in the bottom three, but it was a middle
2: episode. One new thing: immunity is introduced for the first time, brings a little more intrigue to the top half of the show, and it's a funny challenge. It is do fried rice, but you have to use some crazy shit.
3: Yeah, we had uh, we had two guests come on for the for this episode, and it was one of those things where I felt really bad because I I didn't know who they were. Like I know who they are, but I've never watched their any of their works. So I, 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 it's not that I wasn't excited, but I was just like, oh, this is – they're really sweet. And uh, Ali Wong and Randall Park, uh, ha, are you familiar with their work, Kevin?
2: Uh, I was familiar with Randall Park because he played Jimmy Chung on the early seasons of Veep and, and frankly should have played them for the later seasons of Veep. That was a character I liked a lot. Well, good
3: because I, I felt like I was – I was like,
2: oh, everyone's going to kill me because I just – I
3: don't know them very well and they seem like I should. Um, but yeah, they, they come on and we do the the fried rice, which – exciting. It brought me back to fifth grade out on Ship's Corner, downtown Westport. All the kids would hang out after school and we would all get the pork fried rice. It's super oily, greasy, for. Fried rice out of the uh, the carton it was awesome and so immediately when I got this quick fire challenge I just got nostalgic.
2: Fried rice is one of the great comfort foods not something we think about as comfort food uh, at least in like kind of Anglo America but it is it is truly one of the great readily available comfort foods in the world but but the challenge of course is they have to take one thing off of this buffet of madness like red <laughs> yeah. like red hot candies and I mean what was some of the other crap yeah. on there?
3: I jelly to, beans, cheese puffs. Peanut like butter. F- yeah, peanut butter. and uh, Watermelon. It was, it was frog legs, um, watermelon. I mean it was all over the place. You know what fried rice is for me? It's a great hangover food. It is like when I wake up in the morning, I want like a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich or just go and get some fried rice. This episode was very much stoner college. Um, this, this quick fire was very much in that vein.
2: Yeah, and I mean the one thing that it was also nice to see is I feel like fried rice has come a long way. When I was growing up, it was just like it was you know essentially stock based rice, and they throw in those frozen peas and carrots, and you knew that's exactly what they were doing. With <laughs> those little like '70s frozen food section vegetables that were just just repulsive, but you know they get subsumed in this sort of gravyish rice and, and you know cooked down. But that, that was it. But yeah, it, it was sort of interesting. To your point. Uh, Kevin Gillespie, fresh off a win in last week's elimination challenge, kind of goes with the best version of Stoner Fried Rice. I mean, he calls it Bachelor Fried Rice, which is really just a euphemism, uh, and and he does it with a wiener, uh, hot dogs, essentially Cheetos and bourbon, which we never really we never heard much about the bourbon. I, I don't know if that was sort of uh, it was a finishing touch, but but it was it was extremely popular. And here comes Kevin
3: waltzing in off the win of the elimination challenge and saying – was he the one who said I didn't really know how to make fried rice?
2: Yeah, Asian food is not part of my repertoire whatever you said. What a
3: flex. What a flex by Kevin Gillespie just waltzing in here. "Ah, I don't really know how to do this very technically. Like I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. Never done this before and then goes in and just smashes the most delicious of all, the poor fried rice or the fried rice.
2: And obviously, I mean the one we've – we've talked about this many times in the past that for all of the genius of Top Chef, the only thing that's sort of lacking fundamentally in the show and the critiques I've heard from people who don't – aren't into it is that at the end of the day, you can't taste the food. right? You're at home and when you watch Project Runway, you can see the dress. And as much as we might like the idea of these foods, you can't ever taste it. For my money, my favorite one uh, – she was recognized as being among the top three in the quickfire – was Karen's nasi goreng, which is essentially an Indonesian or Malaysian fried rice, but it's done with a sweet soy sauce, so it gets that caramelization on the rice, and then just a fried egg on top. And I am of the Anthony Bourdain school, which is a fried egg on anything makes it better. <laughs> yeah.
3: Kevin, I was going to ask you what is what is your fried rice special? Like, what kind of ingredients or toppings or, or mixins are you getting in there? You know,
2: it's funny. I don't. I've never made fried rice at the house. And I don't know if I, I just have one of those gay carbophobe houses, so, so neither of us eat a ton of rice. <laughs> we do a farro salad that I like that I yeah. stole from Alimento um, here in Los Angeles, which is you know I kind of I, I do some hot like a little bit of hot chili because I have to be careful, of course. Um, cucumber, radish, uh, some some green onion, and then uh, some mint, and then top it with like feta. And that is the closest thing to fried rice in my house, but it's not really. It's a farro salad. Who am I kidding? And this has actually kind of inspired me. I've got a wok. I've not used it since I moved to this house. And I've got some oil. And I got some rice. So may- And I got some eggs. So maybe it is time for me to uh, – you know what? I'm going to have some leftover salmon, grilled salmon tonight. Maybe tomorrow yeah. for lunch. Crisp it up a little bit. Yeah. Maybe it is salmon fried rice with some green onion. And I don't know what maybe some some dill is that gonna work? No, I don't know. Uh, we'll, I thought we'll we'll you're right.
3: N- the nasi the nasi goreng was was great. Uh, it looked like she nailed it. Uh, Padma was a big fan of it. Um, surprised she didn't win with that dish. And yeah, foreshadowing a little bit is like Karen nailed this dish as much as she didn't nail the the next dish that she did in this episode. But but I thought Leanne Leanne had a curried anchovy and beef fried rice that I I actually was like
2: really into that one too. Yeah, like not, you know why. Because it had that crispiness too, you know. You get that. You know that thing that we all get now at the at the Japanese nouveau Japanese restaurant. You get like the the fried rice cake, and they put the tuna tartare on it. Mm, yes, it's that texture of fried rice that I think she achieved, uh, and it looked like Karen achieved too, because you get that nice caramelization with the sweet soy sauce. But um, I'm with you, man. And, and Leanne also got out of the trap, which is there was too much crazy shit going on on that table, and if you got if you got sucked into the vortex of shit, you ended up like like Nini, who's just been. Cooking wonderfully, Tom, but but tried to put watermelon, which is best served cold and is watery by definition by by name, into a fried rice dish. But I'm with you, man. The Leanne, uh, you know who else uh, had had a top three was uh, your your guy Eric, our guy Eric, but your guy.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Team Tom, Eric, peanut butter and jelly fried rice with the fried egg. I mean, come on, that is delicious. I, I didn't think it was going to be great, but he came out with a with a big W on that one.
2: I'm kind of trying to figure out like like how the peanut butter worked. I mean, I guess it's no different than if you put, I mean, and, and you've seen this in rice dishes before, like like peanuts, if you did. But uh, he he did some ponzu. I'm I'm trying to imagine it, but they loved it, and that was yeah. great. Uh, Nini got dinged. Uh, Jamie and what might have been a foreshadowing got dinged because his spam chunks were too big. And you know, one of the hallmarks of fried rice is you do that sausage, but it's kind of really, really diced up so that it's like yeah. you don't want any ingredient that's much larger that's much larger than a couple of grains of rice. You know, I thought
3: I think spam actually works as a fried rice component. Oh, yeah. Um I, I think like if I wanted to build a fried rice dish for myself you need to get this the the salty so you get the pork belly like cubes and i'm thinking in my head i'm like oh the spam sounds good in theory but the chunks were just too big much like nini's the uh the watermelon i don't know how you're gonna able to pull that off with such big watermelon chunks in there and i I know she was trying to go for like that like tuna playoff but it didn't work there and jamie with the the spam the shallots the fresno chilies and what whiskey barreled fish sauce, barrel aged fish sauce? Wow, um, I cool. I was surprised by that. That was a really Can we cool find dish.
2: Some of that, I'm actually hold on. Barrel aged fish sauce. Can I buy this shit? On yeah, me? wow. Barrel aged fish sauce. A- I've got I've got I've got something for you. Bliss's barrel aged fish sauce is a collaboration between Bliss and Red Boat, the finest fish sauce in the industry. Made with red B-Boat 40N, this premium fish sauce is enhanced, has enhanced its natural flavors through the proprietary aging process (laughs) for seven months available on Amazon. Uh, I'm I'm trying to get there for $27, 200 milliliters. Uh, That's some serious – that is some serious business. Uh, We might – I might have to – because I use fish sauce a lot now because it's it's key in my uh, Vietnamese – uh, fish sauce and palm sugar kind of uh, my, my caramel sauce base that I stole from the Slanted Door cookbook. So I might have to spring on this. I mean, hell, I'm not spending money on anything else. It says
3: finest in the industry, Kevin. How many are in this industry? Um, I you, think fish sauce is a pretty big industry. Well, the barrel-aged the barrel aged fish sauce is what I'm saying. Probably not that many, but hey, I'm, I'm a fan. And Jamie, I think, would have won this if you didn't
2: have such big chunks as spam. Um, the other thing, the interesting thing was, is and they all finished in the middle, because when I was watching, I was like, you know, the frog legs are a smart way to go because you 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 satisfy the weird shit requirement. But, but yeah, at the same yeah. time, I mean, what a frog like tastes like chicken, right? That That's frog. So, you know, I like Malarkey's tempura frog legs with a fig pomegranate rice. I like Gr- Greg went with a frog leg with salt cod fried rice with scrambled egg, which I was certain was going to win. And then Stephanie got good marks for her. She did the Nashville fried frog legs, so she ends up using the red hot candy, which I thought was completely unusable, makes it as the coat to her Nashville fried chicken or fried, fried, fried uh, frog legs. None yep. of those people got in the top and none of those people got in the bottom. So it turned out that frog legs were sort of your, your easy most way to – <laughs> yeah. yes. The most mid component, yeah. Y- you were a median chef. So uh, <laughs> Kevin wins. Karen and Eric get kudos. Nini and Jamie get uh, dinged. Uh, And most important, though, for Kevin, he gets immunity, which looks like it might have come in handy. Yes, and this is
3: what I was excited about, is Kevin Arnovitz, you win immunity for this episode. You're assessing the teams, and here comes the game theory, right? You're looking at which team can I knock down a strong competitor and therefore – have an easier road to the, to the final because you are knocking down. Uh, I would look at the list and see are there two, two really strong candidates or there two juggernauts on any of these teams. And it looks like Kevin, when he picked his team, I think he was kind
2: of thinking strategy on this. Well, I mean, here, here's the thing though. If I'm, if I'm looking at it from his standpoint, I, I think frankly that, I mean, to me, uh, Rucoco with Valtaggio, Jamie, and Lisa uh, potential there because I think, you know, Jamie's been middling uh, Lisa's been middling, Valtaggio's a beast, um, but I would say like don't you want to go with um, Nini Malarkey and Leanne Leanne's been str- on, on struggling uh, Malarkey really hasn't prior to this week done anything uh, except annoy the judges, and Nini's solid obviously, um, but you really want to go with Eric who's a juggernaut. Karen's been cooking very well, and Jen Carroll's done nothing but—I mean, she's done nothing below average. So to me, it was very interesting he chose neoclassical in that group. Um, well, I so wait,
3: what's your what's your strategy here? Because if you go to a, a weak team. You're not really raising the chance that a juggernaut gets in the bottom.
2: Oh, I right? see what you're saying. You're yeah. Saying, so you go
3: to a really good. Te- you go to a stacked team. You're increasing the chances that someone gets into the bottom. Yeah. So let me throw I, a I counter go, argument to
2: you. Yep. The counter argument is, you can't lose. You can only win if you're Kevin. So don't you want to go to a team you perceive as weak? Because at this point. Losing doesn't come with any cost. Yeah, I I hear you. You can technically punch everybody down a peg. But don't forget, they're not working on the point system like you're working on the point system and like I'm working on the point system. Kevin doesn't work on a point system. He basically has a free chance to win without any downside to lose. I want to go to the weakest team if I'm him. That's that's an interesting
3: theory. And maybe I'm playing Monday morning quarterback here because it doesn't seem like that was his strategy. Right, because he went with a really strong team he went with a strong team and mailed it in. So it seems like to me that he was very much, I'm going to just pop in here on this team and knock someone down. And I I get, I didn't even think about him going for a win here. I just thought who is going to have the, and, and I think Karen was really worried about it. It was like, man, he joined our group. And now I, I, I feel like I've, I've got Eric and Kevin and Jen to deal with. So I think the strategy from Kevin's side was he looked at the teams and said, who has the strongest team, neoclassicism. Neoclassicism, I just pulled a gen there. Um, but I think the strongest team, maybe in retrospect, is – I think it was Rococo. It's Gregory, Melissa, and Stephanie. Rococo right. is Steph, Gregory, and Melissa, and I think that might be the strongest team there.
2: Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's throw through the teams in, in chronological order. Uh, Renaissance, <laughs> obviously 15th century – it's, it's obviously it's it's, it's, it's emotional. Uh, Renaissance art is all those things that make human beings human beings, right? So we're coming out of the dark ages where humanity is just at its at its <laughs> at its nadir of existence, and then comes the Renaissance, which is we are humans. We have great capacity for love, for 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 art, for emotion, uh, for wedding, reason, and tradition, and all those things. So so that's the challenge. We got Nini who kind of brilliantly interprets. And most simply interprets the challenge, right? She's on the Renaissance team. What does Renaissance mean? It means rebirth. I'm from New Orleans. Now I get to cook my home food and call she it Renaissance She didn't even need to
3: food. go. She didn't even need to go to the museum. She right. knew what she was going to do. She figured out. All right, I'm going to do a play on words on on Renaissance and just kind of build into that theme there. And I think it really, really worked. And I think that's the strategy you got to go with. Like right. the idea. Stephanie went with the other one, which is. I'm going to go pick out something I see from the paintings and have that inspire my dish. And I thought she nailed it conceptually and you saw Nina go in the opposite direction, which is I don't even need to see any of this shit. I know right. what I'm going to do and I'm going to nail that dish.
2: Yeah, and by all accounts she she did pretty well, Nini. Uh, it, it wasn't it was good on story, clearly well executed, just short on plating. I mean, at the end of the day, they did invest a little bit in, in in plating and in presentation. It was a fundamentally presentationish challenge. Uh speaking of which, Malarkey. Halo wow. of halibut. Um, really smart. Um, it was a gorgeous plate. Didn't didn't chintz it up with a lot. Just had a nice pharaoh, um, but that highlighted the main ingredient and, you know, cooked his fish. And kind of also mastered the challenge in the sense that I'm gonna pick one detail. I'm not gonna Try to get into the guts of of, of all the characteristics of, of Renaissance art. I'm just going to say, hey, you know what? There is a lot of halos, right? Like <laughs> all of these, uh, all of these sort of, uh, you know, celestial characters are, are imbued with this kind of gold dome around them. Hell, I'll do that to Halibut. Call it a day, and he did, and he worked, and he got on top from that group. Meanwhile, Tom. Leanne wins the Kutsuji Award for Culinary Chaos. What the hell was that? (laughs) What was going on? I mean, what do you think was going on there? Uh,
3: I don't know. Maybe she just looked at all the different uh, ingredients at Whole Foods and just said, yeah, I'm going to do that paste. I'm going to do that puree. I'm going to do that puree and that puree. And maybe she just – it's almost like she didn't know what to say, and so she just kept blabbering in her head on a dish where it was like, I don't really love this, so I'm going to keep adding ingredients
2: until I get somewhere, and she never really got anywhere. Right. Let's just – let's take inventory here. So the very base of the dish was duck three ways, right? Like duck breast, duck confit, and then a duck egg, whatever that's worth, and I love duck eggs. That's a strong start. I like that. Then we're going to give you a ton of different root purees. A beet puree, a celery root puree. I think there was some bread in there in, in one of those purees. And a sure, black that's, garlic puree too? Oh, oh yeah, that's right. The black. I'm not even remembering the black garlic puree. And then if that's <laughs> not enough, Tom, if that's not enough, I've got some poached apples for you. How do you like them what? apples?
3: What was that? Uh, yeah, like it didn't make any sense. And when and when she delivered, I think she knew. She knew. She knew. She knew. Uh, to her credit, she knew. She knew, and that's always a good sign. Is when they're self aware about their dish, and it was. It was a mess, um, and I – you said it a couple weeks ago. Maybe it was last week that Leanne is not very long for this competition, and this episode, I thought she had a good start, a good start at the quick-fire challenge. Yeah. Didn't get immunity,
2: but, man, she was walking on a tightrope. Uh, so then you, got, then you got Baroque, you know, uh, lovely period, a little bit ornate. I'm thinking like Bernini's, St. Peter's Square. You got all that good stuff. I mean it, it, that's more architecture they were doing more, more painting, but uh, here, here we go. We got Lisa who, by the way, we will get to later. She is a free agent, but will cease to be a free agent after this week. Um, once again, Tom, I got nothing to complain about. You got anything to complain about with the Mexican Chipotle brisket? No, that sounds
3: delicious. And uh, I thought I thought it was a really strong team. Um, I, I, look, Br- Voltaggio, he's, he, oh, we're doing uh, Voltaggio yet? Yeah, we, we can get to Voltaggio. Yeah. I'm just talking to yeah, Lisa the, and- you know. Lisa, Lisa, and Voltaggio. Look, when you look at uh, a brisket, I'm all in. Anything you do with a brisket, anything you do with short rib, any sort of that meaty, uh, just kind of uh, uh, fatty, meaty dish, I'm all in. And I and I like the fact that Lisa kind of inspired by her own roots uh the the jewish mexican brisket where she was like yeah my last name is portuguese but i'm a white jewish canadian i very much identify with that as someone with the last name of haberstro and people think i'm german but i am you're not actually I'm very greek. much i'm very much greek so my my last name should be kalakos but uh, it's haberstrokes
2: this is my favorite adopted. thing one of my favorite things about you among many favorite things i love <laughs> yeah, that you're kind of tom be- kalakos I'm Tom Kalakas.
3: and my, like you sound uh, like you should be
2: on season two of The Wire. Yes, yes, with the
3: Sabakas. Um. No, they're Polish.
2: <laughs> I'm talking about like the Greek, and that like that whole. Thing. Oh
3: yeah, Jimmy, uh, was it Jimmy the Greek? Was his name? I think no, it, no, that that, yeah. that was
2: the racist uh, handicapper for CBS. That was somebody else. Somebody else. <laughs> he was just the Greek. Um, yes, the Greek. Yeah, I,
3: I I was very much on board with Lisa uh, on that one. So. That dish, uh, Brian with the red snapper, uh, smoked sweet potato, love that one. Um, you know, it was – these were some strong dishes. But I got to say, Kevin, I didn't take art history in college. Not big into art history. So I'm, I needed like some uh, cliff notes here when they were describing their dishes, what the, the periods were representing because I was lost. It was – I was – there's too much for me to keep track of and I thought that was one of the drawbacks of this episode is – I felt like the, the – um, I think it was you, Kevin, who taught me when you were my editor at the Heat Index way back when. I think you were editing one of my pieces and you said something like, if you don't enjoy writing the piece, they're not going to enjoy reading it. Yeah, Does that's that sound always good, like Kevin. Yeah,
2: that, that's actually been one of my, my kind of – my mantras whenever I'm slogging through a piece and realize – I haven't been enjoying it for the last forty-five minutes. I need to erase what I've what I've written because yeah, if I ain't enjoying I reading that. it, you ain't gonna enjoy. Re- uh, if I am jo- not enjoying writing it, you ain't gonna enjoy reading it. That's always been my rule. Exactly, um, and I felt
3: like that was what was happening in this episode, which was they were there were the majority of the chefs here were really struggling with the challenge, and it felt like they didn't really believe in their the their concept very well, and and I kind of felt that a lot, N- not with this particular team, but. Just in general with this episode, it just felt it felt like there were a lot of stretches here, um, and I, I didn't quite. It was hard for a lot of them to to nail the
2: the period and what they were representing, and so I I kind of felt for them a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the Baroque I think was the hardest one to kind of grasp because it sort of sits between. It, it's not a re- so much of a reaction against Renaissance. It's a little bit of hey, let's take what we go and. Um, whereas Rococo is very easy to understand, right? Like it's just crazy; everything goes. It's like the '70s glam of 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 <laughs> kind of the the early, uh, not even like pre Enlightenment or early Enlightenment, right? And then neoclassicals, is this reaction against Rococo, right? So it's just like okay. – As Eric said, it's very focused; it's orderly, like a return to kind of clean cleanliness. And um, and he perfectly captured it on his plate. Uh, but let's talk about Jamie for a second uh, to close out Baroque. Has an idea for a seared chicken breast. He's gonna sous vide that bitch. Um, he's gonna get this lovely jus that he seems to be uh, into. A charred citrus gremolata, which I think sounds fantastic. And apparently I think was well liked by by some of the judges. But he doesn't get the jus on the plate. Oof. Julie. eat? No, jus did not eat. eat? No.
3: <laughs> Man, you do Nobody it. Nobody ate death. the jus. No, nobody ate the jus. It was it was for
2: guest judge Ludo the How do you pronounce his last name? Lefebvre. 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 Um There was a Jim Lefebre. I think was a, a as a baseball player and then manager at some point. Um, Ludo, you ever been? To, have you ever gone to Twomac together? No. Oh, we need to do that. We need to do that. Uh, it's- and it's- we need to go to uh, uh, Wolf's Mount. Yeah. Oh, we'll talk about Craig Thornton in a few minutes, but uh, when we get to kind of the the, the table, but. Um, mm. Jamie, uh, uh, Jamie's—you kind of saw it coming, too.
3: Kevin, Kevin, help me out here. Isn't the whole point of sous-vide something that
2: you're not going to overcook it? Yeah, I would say exactly. That's exactly. It, it just gives an evenness to to the cooking. You know who's a master of the sous-vide? Isn't Ethan Sherwood Strauss? Ethan Strauss is a master of the sous-vide. He he can sous-vide. He can sous a leather shoe, and 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 make it <laughs> taste good. He is. He is a master. Now I have this steam oven that I was encouraged to get, which kind of gives me a little of that sous vide quality. But but I've never actually used a sous vide. That that is the point, right? You just you just you get this evenness. Um, it, it's supposed to prevent dryness. Uh, I do not know a hell of a lot about it, though.
3: Yeah, I feel like it's it's kind of a cheat code for for doneness, right? I feel like if if I'm gonna pull out the sous vide uh, for for a dish. It's gonna. I'm not gonna have to worry about whether it's overcooked or undercooked because it kind of it's very precise, right? And I feel like that is that was bonkers to me was that when he presented the dish, it wasn't about uh, the jus so much like that. That was a big problem. But the fact that they thought it was dry and overcooked, I just scratched my head. And you know what? We learned a lot, and we'll get to it in the Last Chance Kitchen. Uh, he he kind of had a rationale for why it might be overcooked. Or seem like it was overcooked, but this was—I mean—a deal breaker for for the fact that you don't put a jus. You, a, you go with a chicken dish, and B, you don't provide a jus for a French super chef. That was that was right. you're done.
2: If ever there was a judge, you need to give the jus to. It's Mister Ooh, and I like the veloute. You know, Brian Fantasio. <laughs> like like this is a guy who is the master of the five French sauces, right? And I don't think jus was one of them, but. If ever there was a challenge where you can't get away with not saucing your chicken, it is the Ludo challenge, and so it was. It was just the worst timing. I, I do want to talk about his theory when we get to LCK, um, but but that so that was the Baroque group. Three was Rococo. We had Gregory. We had Melissa. We had Stephanie. Strong group, and holy crap! Did they did they cook the heck out of this? Um, Gregory, who. Um, You know what, Tom? Am I correct that Gregory had the second best dish of the night? Very possible. We had one of these weird, uh, quirky
3: team efforts that kind of jumbled things a little bit because Gregory had an amazing dish and the uh, miso short ribs and the – I mean, you're coming behind Melissa on this one, but man, that would have won in a couple other groups.
2: Yeah, I, I think it might have been the second best season. You know what it reminded me of is the National League West, 1993. Atlanta Braves. 100- <laughs> yeah, of course. Right, because this is before the wild card. 104 wins for the Atlanta Braves, and then a San Francisco Giants team that won 103 games. Tom, can you even conceive, because you were very young at that time, can you conceive a major league baseball team winning 103 games and not even qualifying for the postseason today now that everyone gets a participation trophy? This Can't. was a team, Tom. Can't. Billy Swift and John Burkett each won twenty games. I think well more than twenty games. Rod Beck just was a boss out of the bullpen. You had you had um, Barry Bonds. You had Matt Williams. You had Will Clark. You had Robbie Thompson, who had a great year at second base. And yet he so so Gregory is the San Francisco Giants of nineteen ninety three of Top Chef episode three. Um, he had is the this second best. Like dish. The Spurs that won the
3: 67 games in the regular season in 2016 and just went right up against the,
2: the Warriors yeah. and couldn't make it out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But So Gregory probably has the second best dish of the night. Uh, but second, unfortunately, to Melissa, uh, who, who her lobster wonton soup essentially with a seafood consomme charred allium oil, which I learned, Tom, do you know what allium is? I did not I know what allium was. It's garlic. It's just a fancy name for garlic. I mean, I suspect. There's an herbiculturalist and, and probably chefs who can tell me the difference between allium and garlic. Um, but whatever it was, it was gorgeous. And she has these beautiful peas. Uh, it, it was a stunning dish to look at. And man, just beautiful and delicate. Uh, you know, it had the indulgence. As you said, lobster was sort of. It, it's one of those dishes that actually could have gone either neoclassical, Rococo, Baroque, maybe not Renaissance, but I, I, I really, it, it was just really versatile. And, and they just absolutely loved it.
3: Oh man, I just want to just look at that dish for for hours. It was a beautiful dish. I don't know if she had it in a restaurant before, but man, Ludo was like, I want this at my Michelin star restaurant. Well, oh, he said it was a Michelin star dish. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you could tell um, that one, as soon as she started conceptualizing it, I was like, yep, that's going to win. I just, I just had a feeling that Melissa was going to nail this, and and it helped, I guess, that she worked at the Getty Museum when she was like 17 years old. That was like one of the first kitchens she was working in, so that must have felt really nice for her.
2: That's a hometown win, um, and then and then we had Stephanie uh, with a mortadella tortelloni poached in an umami nage, which Gail loved, by the way. Some grapes. Mm. Unfortunately, suffered from just a, a lack of execution because the pasta was undercooked. Had it not been undercooked, I, I think maybe she gets dinged a little for for the wafy grapes, as Gail Simmons said. But but everything else, kind of on the plate, did well. And and so uh, I think of the of the last placer, she I think had probably, you know, someone who might not have finished last in three other groups. Yeah, but I kind of loved her inspiration for this dish. The idea of like, yeah, there
3: are a lot of curves. In this, and I, I just thought of tortellini. I love that. Um, I thought like the the closest of something on a painting in food form. That was it. And then I'm wondering, do you think that wafy grapes is a better uh, restaurant name, or is it umami naj? Oh, umaminage. wafy grapes, umami nage. Umami naj is a beautiful
2: phrase. Um, yeah, but uh, wafy grapes because I guess. The theory is if you're going to do grapes, you need to go more substantially like like have to but you could, really half of a grape is as far down as you can go while still maintaining its fundamental grapeiness, I guess
0: Hello, listener. guess, who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turn podcast producer, and I'm here to talk to you about Butcher box. Butcher box is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order.
3: Yes. And I... Look, I think Stephanie – it wasn't a bad dish, but she had to be in the bottom because she was going up
2: against Melissa and Gregory, who two two chefs that could win this whole damn thing. So uh, speaking of, of the judges, Craig Thornton from Wolvesmouth was was featured, and talk about a guy whose plates are, are just beautiful art. More Jackson Pollock probably than, than Baroque or uh, neoclassical, but uh, Craig's brilliant because Wolvesmouth – and there's a great – if anybody wants to read it, there's a, there's a great – feature story in The New Yorker by Dana Goodyear several years ago about Wolvesmouth. Mouth. And essentially, he was very early in this, hey, let's let's have not exactly a pop-up dinner, but but regular, regular seatings where uh, you're going to apply, you will get accepted and if you're accepted, essentially, it's a dinner for 16 or 20. It used to be held in a downtown loft in Los Angeles and then Craig did something amazing which was he either bought or got a A bungalow in Hollywood, right off of Fountain, and blew it out to the point where when you walk in, it is a chef's kitchen. It's like a restaurant kitchen. On to the right and to the left is a table that seats about 20. This is the
3: place that, Kevin, every time I come to L.A., you try to get a, a, a seating there or something. I haven't been there yet, and you're like, this is number one on the list for L.A.
2: Yeah, absolutely, I and mean, when you have enough notice, you, you should definitely give me a night. Um, it's usually held on Fridays, Saturdays, sometimes Thursdays, but then you go in, and you sit down with strangers, and he just proceeds to give you an absolutely gorgeous seven- or eight-course meal. He has a spinoff of Wool's Mouse, which is really in the same place, same staff, same everything, uh, which is called Shark's Tooth, which is more seafood-focused, and I mean, talk about a guy who... There's a lot going on on the plate, but everything makes sense. I mean, it's a classic. Like if Gail Simmons were judging Craig Thornton, there's so much going on here, but yet everything has a purpose. Everything has a meaning, and everything speaks to everything else on the plate. Uh, Thornton's a great chef. It's also just a great production. Um, The whole gang there, Caleb, is wonderful. I see Caleb Chen at at the Hollywood Farmer's Market, so you know they're getting the good shit. And I'm just such a fan of Wool's Mouth and was so heartened to see Craig Thornton there as a judge. Uh, because he's as much a part of the soul of Los Angeles cooking right now than anybody. Who wh- whose dish do you think he loved the most? Like, uh, which one of these dishes do you feel like would have been a wolf's mouth dish? The most wolf's mouthy dish might have been, might have been Eric, though I would also say that. Brian's dish, yeah, Brian's like dish, another yeah, halo. Yeah, I mean just cuz I mean he would fit in I mean Craig Thornton would wouldn't fit into any of these four class. I mean he would be uh expressionism. He would be you know modern, he would be mm-hmm. um I mean there's there's just so much it, it is his style again. I mean I was like it's more Jackson Pollock than uh, uh than Ruben or anything like that. So, yeah, he's uh he's I'm trying to think what else would have been. Now I think those two probably were, would have had it. Um would it would have been sort of the most uh the the most wolves mouthy ish dish. But it was uh, good to see him because I knew as soon as I saw him on the screen I was like, oh that Kevin's gonna love that. Yeah, this was great. So the final group was neoclassical and again, you know, kind of Eric defined it very well. It's a very orderly movement, um, much more focus. Karen comes in with something that could not have been talk so and I'm I'm a big you know, I'm I'm big on Karen. I drafted her high. I love her the cooking she's done. But this was kind of a classic misinterpretation. So it's not unfair to say that neoclassical is the simplest of the four movements. That's an easy call. But I think it's this weird extrapolation from, oh, neoclassical is simple. I'll make something simple. And then what she made was rustic. I mean, it could not have been less neoclassical and only insofar as it was simple. No, it was actually kind of boring. She does a braised chicken with chicories, a brown butter, and and – (laughs) <laughs> like like she did rustic food for a neoclassical challenge, which was just an error, and then you know apparently didn't execute it all that well. though she's been kind of brilliant all season. Then we got your guy Eric. It's a beautiful dish, the halibut,
3: um, very tweezery dish, very aesthetically pleasing. Stands out aesthetically, they said. Uh, man, it it looked delicious. It wasn't the most indulgent of dishes, but Eric just nailed that one too.
2: Yeah, green peppercorn broth just look great. Uh, I have a little hack for you, and Eric knows it clearly. My Shoot. everyday plates at the house uh, are those nice, almost concrete gray plates because everything looks more sophisticated on that plate. Ooh. Like you I knew noticed any- that; it was a black uh-huh. background there. Yeah, yeah so I, it's like kind of a grayish. I got these plates for my house, and, and whenever, so all of a sudden, everything looks a little bit more restauranty. Everything looks more tweezery. Everything, like every smear. <laughs> It's just more. It's it's a really good hack for making your cooking look more sophisticated and intentional than it actually is, and so that's what I use on my everyday uh, on my everyday plates. Uh, Jen Carroll is an interesting chef right now because Tom, I feel like she has not gotten a lot of attention. She has not been low. She has not been all that high. Uh, I, I thought the Ludo's characterization was interesting. So she does this. Seared red snapper, no surprise, right? This is the seafood queen, as yeah. Malarkey called her. An apple radish fennel relish looked lovely. Looked like a dish I would thoroughly enjoy as as a, as a fish guy. Um, he dismissed it as itch fish and sauce, and I, I thought it was an it was a it was a telling critique. Is Jen too safe to really sort of get to the finals of a Top Chef? It's an interesting question, Kevin, because when you look at
3: where you want to be for the first few rounds, maybe it's okay to be high floor in the in the beginning, in the few the first few rounds of top chef at this stage in the game. It might be best serve for you to just be a high floor and not get eliminated later on. You got to get more bold, more risky, more outside the box um, and I don't know if she has it in her. In past seasons, of course, she has done well uh, on this show. So I think that's uh, that's what you worry about is that she's going to get too comfortable bringing in and bunting right to get on base. You need to swing for the fences, and so far it seems like
2: Jen hasn't taken those big Barry bond swings yet. Yeah, but cooking well by by everyone. Her chickpea stew last week, well received. Uh, I, I just I'm always interested. One of the things that happens on this show, just from a production standpoint, is when you have fifteen, fourteen, thirteen, or twelve chefs, they can't get to everyone. Like we haven't seen a lot of attention on Lisa's cooking either, right? No. She is not done poorly. She a lot like well, Jen. Well, done- Lisa and
3: Jen both
2: mid, middle survivors for all three episodes. And maybe that's so just get the bottom or top three. Yeah, right. They they, they point out the real uh, clunkers. They point out the really inspirational stuff, and they don't have time to the extent that they can't get to everyone or have an extensive conversation uh, about everyone's food. If you finish middle of the pack, you know you're you're, you're sort of forgettable in that sense. You just you, you make a, neither a positive nor a negative impression. Uh, and then finally we have Kevin, who had immunity. It, what was interesting is um, he 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 bombed his dish. Right, it was a lamb loin glazed carrots and (laughs) and a feta feta carrot top, which actually I liked on the plate. It kind of reminded me like, oh, this is Kevin's rendition of a steakhouse cream spinach. You know, cutting up the carrot tops and with feta. It kind of it looked like that. And and I wasn't expecting it to be bad. There was an olive sauce apparently. What was interesting is when he got back there after getting dinged in front of the judges, he said, Oh, this was about, you know, taking a big swing or I forget how he said it, you know, throwing shit against the wall did it look that risky? It wasn't like, no. oh, he tried something crazy. He just I don't know, maybe he just phoned it in as you said.
3: Yeah, I think he I think he phoned it in, mailed it in and um, you know, I think aesthetically and from the from an in, inspirational dish, I just don't think it was I think he mailed it in. And I think when you're Kevin at this point, that's okay. And there's strategy here is mail it in, uh, get your DNP rest, make sure that, you know, you're you're not out of shape going into the next game you don't want to lose your conditioning going into the next game but hey you know what getting a load management day um during an elimination challenge this early in the game it might serve you well later so kudos to kevin i i like i like i like the strategy here is that you don't want to uh burn on both ends here so he he didn't have uh a really great dish here and that's okay that's why you have immunity and by the way jamie Props to you for owning it earlier in this episode. Saying if I get immunity, I'm not giving it up uh, because Kevin, if he gave up his immunity in this episode and produced that dish, he might have been going home.
2: Yeah, so I, I, I somewhat agree with you. I just don't think that you know cooking for four hours poorly is is any much less. Uh- taxing on one's body or, or, or load and, <laughs> and cooking well uh, I'd like to see my top draft pick kind of nail it or at least kind of get in the middle again I'd feel better if he'd actually if he did something truly crazy like I'm just gonna look I can cook whatever yeah. I want here it was a lamb loin with some glazed carrots I mean shit Tom, yeah. I could do glazed carrots I mean anybody I was gonna say carrots. I feel like I could have done
3: that dish and obviously I can't but yeah that was a dish that I, I didn't feel like was something I'm gonna
2: go super inventive here also, I, I do believe in momentum, and here's a guy who's coming off of a brilliant win last week, just killed the uh, quick-fire challenge earlier in the episode and just wanted to see him sustain it because I do think these things in this particular show can be self-fulfilling. I don't think there's such a thing as a regression to the mean. I think I, I think competence in the kitchen compounds itself over time, and so I was just a little, little bummed, just thought, hey, and also, again, I don't. I'm not bummed that he bummed that he that he laid an egg. I'm bummed that he didn't lay a more creative egg.
3: Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying, but you know what? He got the immunity, and there were four at the bottom this this episode. Which you know what? I I in in, in weeks past we talk about whether we like the whole team aspect here. Uh, I didn't quite feel, maybe Stephanie, like who in the bottom four? We had Karen, Leanne, Stephanie, and Jamie in the bottom four. Were any of those dishes, do you think, that were unqualified for being in the bottom four? Or do you think that was a fair
2: bottom four? No, unless you believe that Jen Carroll, Gregory, Lisa, or Nene had a worse dish than Stephanie. I didn't see because those were the middle winners or the right. middle winners. Those were the middlers in age category. My sense was is you know Nini's wasn't the most beautiful to look at, uh, so she got a middle. Lisa just had a nice dish, but it wasn't mm-hmm. as good as Voltaggio's. Gregory might, as we've talked about, had the second best dish, so he certainly um, wasn't going. And then and then you know by definition, Jen was ahead of Karen. Had Karen's dish been better than Jen, she wouldn't have been on the bottom by definition, right? So the truth is is I think we got the four least uh, refined or not for fine just just the least good dishes so i don't think there was anybody who got unlike gregory who i think probably got robbed from a from a judge's winners lineup because he happened to be in a group with the best dish in the day
3: so the question is if if kevin didn't have immunity would he have been in the bottom four karen Uh, karen said if i go home
2: because kevin has immunity i'm gonna be pissed so do you think she had a bone to pick there well, I, in, in this sense, I think Padma pretty much said that Karen wouldn't be standing there. But uh, look, I think don't be pissed. You know, you in other words, you have to beat two other chefs. It just so happened that you had the fourth chef. But truthfully, you would have been there anyway had Kevin chosen some other team. Control two, what you can control. And she did not right. do that. Right. Like, and I, look, Karen's my... Karen's my chef, and I am I love what she's doing this season. But at the end of the day, you know, you don't want to be on the block? Beat two other chefs. Just beat two other chefs. That's all you have to do to not be on the bottom. But as it was, she wasn't even considered. I think there was an understanding that Jamie and Leanne were the true contenders for elimination here. Right, Like Stephanie, one error. They liked a lot about her dish. She just undercooked the pasta. You yeah. know, Karen's was boring, but it wasn't like she just absolutely it lacked a little flavor. But it wasn't – a it, it, it certainly vi- It didn't violate. It just didn't conform. to Monochromatic. It was not. Right. In,
3: it, yeah, I think it was, you're right. It was no between Jamie and Leanne. To, right, to
2: neoclassical. So it was those two. And then, you know, though Leanne did get the Katsuji Award for culinary chaos, it wasn't chaotic <laughs> enough to lose to a dried clunk of a chunk of chicken without any sauce. Um, and that, that went. After being in the top... For the first episode
3: uh, with Stephanie and with Gregory at the beach, uh, Jamie has an exit here for not having a jus and also having an overcooked chicken. He goes home. The Charlotte's Own Jamie Lynch. I am sorry to see him go on this on this competition. You know, we, he was my last pick uh, on my team. Um, so I'm not I'm not crying too much that I lose Jamie on my team. But man. It, it didn't feel like he uh, he deserved to stay on after that dish. I think it was a well-deserved elimination compared to the rest of the uh, the dishes. I'm sorry to see him go after such a strong start out of the gate. Um, and Leon lives to see another day in the competition.
2: Yeah, a um, little concerned about Stephanie. I thought she had a really strong week one. Last week was sort of a crisis of confidence. This week, fortunately, it was just a crisis of, of execution. I, I don't think she... She had a good idea. Most of it was well executed. The pasta was undercooked, obviously a killer. But hoping wasn't. to get a bounce back from Stephanie, hoping after
3: last week yeah. serving up the Indian dish to uh, to Padma uh, that she would have a big bounce back. And, you know, the tortellini dish it was it was a it was a mid dish. It was it was something that I think in normal episodes she would have been in the middle of the pack. Uh, but still, like you said, didn't bounce back in a very. Uh, Promising way for Stephanie. the The last two episodes, she's been in the bottom. The only uh, contestant so far that has been in the bottom for two straight weeks. So, after being in the high, uh, the top three, she is now in the bottom three for the last two episodes. Uh,
2: so, she's got to really turn things around for you, Kevin. Yeah, she is. Uh, one other comment about the show itself: uh, recording in Los Angeles in the early and mid fall is. I think it's a little unfortunate because one of the things I'm noticing is a lot of root vegetables, some sweet potato. I think we are unfortunately missing out on some of the great summery produce that you get in Los Angeles. And I'm already noting, uh, I don't need this. uh, Root vegetables are just this unfortunate thing we have to deal with until we get to spring and and, and summer. Uh, So what's 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 an
3: ingredient in LA, uh, summer LA that you're missing right now?
2: Oh, in this competition, and okra, and just sort of like fresher greens, and just bright or uh, stone fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, although we did see some uh, peaches in week one, so I, I shouldn't say maybe maybe it was late early enough that they still got some of that. It's just there's just more vibrant, um, more vibrant I mean, English peas, though we did see a few of those. I think we saw some snap peas uh, that were used in that, but I, I don't know. It's just I'm seeing a lot of root vegetables, and I look, I mm. love. I love beets as much as the next guy, and I do – I've enjoyed cooking beets here, and I, I do it a lot. But, you know, it's root vegetables. It just it's – a, it's a slightly less interesting kind of so, kind of cupboard or, or produce drawer than, than you would want. And it's not a complaint. I just – I'm noticing it, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is cooking in Los Angeles when you get to fall or anywhere for that matter. You just – there's a little less to choose from. But uh, – and then you're not early – you're, you're early, too early for citrus, though. So it's just kind of a weird period. Um, Tom, let's uh, let's talk about Last Chance Kitchen. Speaking of Jamie and Chicken and Joe Sasto's waiting for him there. I love this Last Chance Kitchen, Kevin.
3: I love the gamesmanship of let's play a little game of Chicken. And man, Tom Calicchio was just needling Jamie every opportunity that he You think had. he was having a good time? Oh, he was having the best time. I mean, when you were looking at Tom just saying, all right, let's play a game of chicken here. How many minutes do you think you would need to produce a winning chicken dish? And it became this little auction back and forth. Do I hear 25? Do I hear 25? 25? There's 24. Do I hear 24? And I'm sitting here just cringing every time because you had these two – bros who were like out trying to out masculine each other a little bit here being like i could i could fucking do 22 minutes on a chicken dish watch me i'll go 20 and he was just playing and i felt like tom was just playing them like a violin because you could sense a little bit of machismo in there being like yeah i could do a 10 minute chicken dish watch me and then once it got to twenty minutes, so the, the conceit of the of the Last Chance Kitchen was let's do chicken, a whole chicken. You can do whatever you want, but you uh, do an auction going down uh, the number of minutes you want to complete the dish. And so they auctioned it off, and it went down, down, down until uh, twenty minutes. And Kevin, that's
2: a that's not a lot of time um, for a chicken dish.
0: Uh,
2: this is my own theory about why jamie lost to joe but i think at the end of the day it's thighs versus skinless boneless breast i, I yeah. don't what are you doing and look jamie's a professional <laughs> i am not um i just i've never seen a situation where skin skinless boneless breast is something that you give fussy eaters who like like the fact that like, somebody who doesn't like chicken skin I mean, which to me is is an alien i mean who doesn't like chicken skin um My Jewish mother and her friends um, don't like chicken skin. Like everybody else in the world likes chicken skin. And, you know, dark meat versus white meat. If I'm going to do white meat, I have to brine it. And this is kind of what I do. The only – I do this chicken breast where I brine overnight and then I kind of sear the skin side and then put it in the – take that pan and put it in the oven for 10 minutes. But but like who likes skinless, boneless breast breast? Oh my God! Nobody likes that. Nobody. An Olympi- likes that. Olympian, maybe some sort right, of right. Exactly, like somebody who's a, <laughs> like again, my mother and her friends who need the sauce on the side and you know nothing fried. And I mean, it's just a very specific brand of of eater uh, who's who's extremely health conscious. As am I. I mean, I, I get it, but it's just if you're in a cooking competition show, I don't see any scenario by which you know what I want from that chicken—the skinless, boneless breast. It just doesn't create. Um, it doesn't create enough fat it to to really to really get what you want accomplished. And so I think that was sort of my theory is when the minute I saw that I'm like, Oh, this is over. Yeah. Last night I had some fried
3: chicken from my favorite restaurant in town, the Stanley, uh here in Charlotte. They did a takeout, um, fried chicken. And when you get that like bit of fried chicken where you're not sure if it's bone or if it's just a really crispy corner of the fried chicken and you just munch on it waiting for the bone, but it's no bone in there. It's just straight chicken skin and it is fried. It is delicious. Uh, Shouts to Paul Verica, who's the James Beard Award nominee chef from from the Stanley. It was a delicious dish and it reminded me, Jamie Lynch here in Charlotte. I'm curious to see if at Five Church in Charlotte, he's going to have a chicken dish on his menu because man, I bet if
2: I'm Jamie Lynch, I am sick of chicken. Uh, I'm, I'm getting a little sick of chicken, too, because it's it's my primary protein here during the um during the lockdown in Los Angeles. Uh, Tom, we have some business to take care of, and uh, do you want to, for our listeners who might just be kind of coming in mid-season, would you like to explain the Lisa situation? So Lisa was the 15th
3: chef-testant in our 14-player chef-testant draft, and the way it worked, the way we agreed on it, and I'm glad we did it after three episodes, but – uh, she was going to be on the waiver wire is that the 15th chef who was not selected in our 14 chef draft was going to be on waivers for a few weeks. Uh, the waiver wire period would end after three weeks. After the third episode, we would then bid on our points. We have uh, just for people who are listening at home. I have 60 points. You have thirty six, and I believe we are doing a cost auction where we are bidding for the rights to Lisa to be added to your team off the waiver wire based on who has the highest bid on
2: her services. Right. So I'm going to get my text out. We text each other, right? So I'm going to propose that – Wait, wait, wait. No. Here's what I think we should do. All right. You're you're a better systems guy here. Here's what I think
3: we should do. I'm going to say three, two, one, go. But instead of saying go, I'm going to say three, two, one. And then in place of go, both of us are going to say the number of our bid. And that way the listeners at home can participate here. So um, I'm going to say three, two, one, go. But instead of saying go, we're both going to shout out our our bid. So again, whoever has the highest number gets to add Lisa to the team. Now, am I – I'm sacrificing those points, right, Kevin? Theoretically, I'm sacrificing those points from my total. It's not just uh, a, a
2: a number. This is actually going to cost me that many points, correct? Right. It'll come up okay. right now. The, 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 right now, the score for those keeping score at home is Tom has 60 points. I have 36. I mean, you have controlled the first three weeks of this contest. Okay, so, um, all right. So...
3: You have your number in mind, Kevin? I do. Okay. All right. I am going to count down three, two. I'm going to count down, and instead of saying go, we are both going to say our number. Ready? Yes. Three, two, one. Five. Six. Oh, I get Lisa. Okay.
2: <laughs> you and I – I mean the fact that it was only one apart I think says a lot.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I was thinking about five. I went with six. I thought you might go with like eight. Um, and so I was thinking if I could get away with, with six, so six, six points off my total means I've got 54. Okay. Um, and well, how about this? I'll just put, you should create a new
2: line. You should create a new line. Um, Yeah.
3: And, and she would be minus six in
2: here right or just with a different color coding just to it demonstrate that uh yes. like a blue or something and then a little asterisk or and you know something like that for those uh, no one can see exactly what's going on in our google Doc <laughs> right now ridiculously bad podcasting that we're trying to just come up with a, a system I, I i love working with tom haberster that's all i can say is there's no other psychopath in the world other than me who would understand like the decision making here so this was my theory so what we're basically saying is You think she's going to have – a so if we assume that she's going to get eliminated at some point, that's negative five. So what you're basically saying is you think Lisa is going to have 11 points or more before she is gone from Last Chance Kitchen. She's laying in the weeds right now. She's
3: laying in the weeds. She's in the middle for three episodes in our point system, Kevin, interestingly enough. She has six points. Like, where well, she doesn't count for six points on my team yet because she hasn't done anything um, for my team. But she and Jen Carroll have six points so far in this competition because you get two points for every episode that you were not in the top or bottom thing. You're just finishing in the middle. So in my head, I don't know whether the, the six was sticky in my head, but I kind of feel like um, in order for her to to. Uh, win out I think she has the opportunity to win an episode she has she doesn't have much of a storyline so far in this in this show I kind of feel like she's she's probably got the least amount of camera time like if we right. did uh a 538 analysis or like, Wall like they do Journal the analysis. democratic
2: debates and stuff
3: yeah like who, gets the most time. <laughs> who gets the most talking time i'd imagine that lisa might have the lowest right there of a and ironically maybe not ironically maybe that is the point is that they're in the middle of the pack so they're the least interesting in terms of the extremes and so uh i i get lisa on my team uh And so she she's costing me six points. So it's going to knock my total score from 60 to 54. Kevin, you're at 36. Uh, You do not lose five points, correct? That's correct. That's correct. You do not lose five points for your bid that uh, failed bid. So you get to maintain your 36. You do not have um, Lisa on your team. So I have Greg. Uh, Gregory, Eric, Brian Voltaggio, Melissa, Jen, uh, leanne Wong, and replacing Jamie Lynch on my team after his loss in Last Chance Kitchen. Uh,
2: welcome to the team, Lisa. Yeah, I think she's cooking really well. And I don't want my five to be a... I mean, again, I, I think I'm somebody who believed that she would she'll have another 10 points before she's gone. Which, by the way, 10 is a lot. I mean, 10 is if you don't win, it's... You know, like for instance, Eric only has eight points through three weeks, right? Um, you know, it's cooked very well. Nini only has nine points through three weeks. I mean, ten ten points is a lot, and I'm essentially saying that's how many she's going to get before elimination, not including uh, last chance. So,
3: well, you know um, what? Also, that incorporated in my bidding process here. Uh, I think it matters. I think I paid a little bit of a premium to not give you another opportunity here because you're you're knocked down a few chefs. So I have a little bit more. Uh, money to play with here and you know in the in the sam Hinky style of of managing your roster you're you're getting more at bats with lisa if you were to get lisa you get more opportunities more swings more bites out of the apple for winning this this top chef fantasy team so i think i maybe have added a couple more dollars because if i had 60 points or if i had 16 points maybe i'm not doing six but i kind of feel like i'm playing a little bit of keep
2: away against you Right. And I and I get that. Um I, I get that. So this will be uh looking forward to next week. Tom, we are down to how many chefs now? We have the show now has twelve, correct? Twelve chefs. Twelve chefs.
3: I have seven um alive, and you have five. You have Kevin, who's just been cooking his tail off. He just won a quick fire just by, you know, waltzing into that and just saying, I don't know how to do this, but I'm gonna win a quick fire anyway. Uh Kevin is i think as strong as anyone in this competition uh maybe the strongest but brian voltaggio even though he has no wins he's been in the top three for two weeks in a row the only chef in this competition kevin that has been in the top three uh or winning in in consecutive weeks so brian's a little bit of a hot streak right now even though he hasn't won he's been in the top three so i'm feeling pretty good about my squad
2: right now with
3: the addition of lisa fernandez
2: but right now I'll tell you, Tom, I, I think the story of the season, and I don't, this is not recency bias, is Melissa King. And I, one of the th- interesting things I wanted to see coming into the season was we've all seen these chefs cook. And it is just logical that any craftsman, whether it's been two years since they've been on the show or five or ten in some cases, people get better at their trade. They just do. You become a better chef over time. I suspect there's a prime, and it'd be really interesting to ask the chefs when they start coming on as guests, hey, when does a chef is, – is it in their 50s? Is it in their early 60s? Is it like late 40s? Is it just one of those skills that um, you know, the sheer hunger drives you to, to, to your greatest heights? But what's been fun about Melissa is of all of these chefs, she is the one that I'm like, oh, she's a different chef than she was two or three years ago when she was on the show. I mean, that is to me kind of that is their defining quality is I think Karen's cooking better than she did. But of all of the chefs, Melissa has shown the most growth through three weeks versus her last. She's just clearly has made I mean, she's she's in a different stratosphere than she was uh, when she was on this. She was very good. She finished fifth. Um, but but now she's cooking with incredible confidence.
3: Yeah, I'm 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 feeling pretty good about uh you not taking that deal earlier in the season. Was it, yeah, t- it was Stephanie it. and Angelo for Melissa. So that is that that deal yeah. by the way Kevin not on the table anymore.
2: Yeah, I, I imagine. Um yeah, I'm I'm feeling <laughs> that that was yeah. I, you know what I, it also gets me thinking maybe the 2 for 1 deal isn't as unfavorable as I thought. Like if you I want the best player in the deal,
3: you might have to do a 2 for 1. You know what? That's, you know, some people believe in that theory is always just get the best player in the deal. And Melissa was the best player in that deal. Uh, Are there any trades, trade anyone on my team that you're uh, you're willing to talk shop or do you want to save it for another episode?
2: I mean, I'm kind of of the belief that anybody I'd want, you won't trade and anybody you trade, I wouldn't want. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of how I feel about it right now. So, yeah,
3: I'm just going to any offers for Jen. Jen has been uh, in in the middle for three weeks. Are you are you comfortable not having her on your team?
2: I'm comfortable. I mean, I'm I'm even wondering would I trade Stephanie for Jen? I feel like there'll be a regression to the mean there. Maybe look, maybe Stephanie's just not that good a cook. I don't know. For this show, I'm not as good a competitor, but I still have confidence. There's something there I still like. Um, the the nacho Indian nachos gives me a little pause again. I I just and it's not even the Padma thing. It is come on. This is Top Chef All Stars.
3: What do you do? malarkey for,
2: Jen? I don't know, Tom. I I think malarkey when he doesn't talk himself into stupidity is a good chef, not a great chef. But I think he's a guy who can get some top three finishes. I think he's a guy with enough technical skill to avert disaster. You know, I mean, his disasters or his weak moments tend to be more conceptual than execution. And so I just kind of think he might be nerding around for okay. a while. I, I thought he'd be out okay. of the competition, but now I kind of feel like oh, okay. he's got enough to get in. A little recency bias a little bit. I'm just trying to see. I'm just trying to see.
3: I'm, I'm, I, I put that on the table. The, the, uh, the proposal has been submitted to Team Kevin's Wait, uh, HQ. Carol for Malarkey? Yes.
2: Carol for Malarkey. I'll think about. It. We we might have some midweek some uh, transactions. <laughs> transactions. We, we might, yeah, yeah. Okay. For other considerate. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll think
3: about this. Right. We will think about this. We have some time on our hands, Kevin. So yeah. let's. Uh, that that proposal has been submitted to the uh, to the HQ uh, via. I didn't even go to an assistant GM for this proposal, and it goes up up the chain. I'm going straight to the GM here and saying, Jen Carroll for Brian Malarkey, straight up. Team Tom, Team Kevin. Um, No Bells and Whistles, maybe we can talk some draft picks going forward just any any sweeteners to add into the deal. But that is that is the proposal. Um, and I will I'm have an answer for you that.
2: before next week. I will have an answer for you
3: before. Okay. Next. Ke- Kelly Clarkson is on the next episode. So, I'm going to get up my uh my pipes here, my vocal cords
2: and get ready for Kelly Clarkson. Um Eric Schwartzel is very excited about this. Oh, I did not know that Eric um, is a big uh, Kelly fan. Eric took his mom when she came out from Western Pennsylvania, and they went to the Kelly Clarkson show. Is he an audience. American Idol super fan, or is it just post American Idol that he fell in love with Kelly? I, I I know nothing about the musical reality shows. All I know is every time <laughs> I, every time I open my DVR now, there's another goddamn episode of The Voice recorded on the top. Like that's <laughs> so. I I I think the answer is yes. I now yeah. like. The thing about musical reality shows is I now know what non-sports fans feel when, like, the game is on or, or when, when people are talking about um, basketball and they're not basketball people. It's like Eric had his book club um, friend over a couple of weeks ago, and they just talked for 10, 15 minutes about – a mu- I think it might have been The Voice. It might have been American. I don't even know what it was. But it was like, oh, this is what sport non-sports fans feel when there are a bunch of sports fans at the table. So I, I think it's – Musical reality shows are sports for non-sports fans. This is my theory. Kelly Clarkson
3: participated. I didn't really know in- who that
2: was. I didn't know who that was. You-, you didn't know who Kelly Clarkson was? I did not. Oh, my goodness. I, I honestly didn't. I couldn't have picked her out of a lineup. Oh, <laughs> Wow,
3: Kelly Clarkson. Um, she participated in the ALS Pepper Challenge, Kevin. She did a video and was like, it. it like, People Magazine picked it up because she ate a habanero and just kind of was like, ah, I, I feel like I can do this. And it was an amazing video. I should, uh, I should post that when the when the episode runs. It's a great, it's a great uh, video to watch. She she really suffered for a habanero. So thank you, Kelly Clarkson, for doing that. Can't wait to watch next week's episode. Um, and See to me, You don't know that song? I can uh, breathe for the first time.
2: All of this is lost on me. <laughs> I, live, I live in a treehouse by myself. Um
0: in, in my- Yeah, yeah. All
2: right. Well, on that note. Well, this notes- is something to look forward to. Yes. Uh, for Tom Ooh. Havistrow, this is Kevin Ornivitz, and this is Pack Your Knives.
3: See to me, God. I can breathe for the first time.